Well, this week, we are going to be continuing in our study of the book of Samuel. Uh, technically, we are in Shemuel Aleph, that is Samuel chapter 1. And we're going to be covering uh, about a, a little over a chapter this week. I really tried to get a little bit further, but uh, there's too many good nuggets. I really try. <laughs> so as we continue our journey through Shemuel Aleph this week, we're reminded that the time of the judges, which preceded it, was a precarious time. There was an uneasiness in the air. The people were dissatisfied with their political figures, their economy, and their overall moral standard that they lived in. We see this, this uneasiness bleed over into the time of the kings. For we see it has always been God's purpose to establish a kingship in Israel. However, it had to be done his way and according to his plan. In the previous chapters, we saw that the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were causing a tremendous burden upon the people by taking more than their fair share of the offering. You see, the Kohen were allowed to take a piece of the offering. In fact, it was part of their duty to take a piece and to partake of it and to eat of it. But we know that they were taking more. They were supposed to dip in a three-pronged fork and take out a little portion. Instead, they went to the people and they said, hey, we want steak. We want it raw, and we want to grill it. Give it to us. And this became a burden to the people. In fact, the people became abhorrent toward the bringing of their offerings to God in the tabernacle. You see, Hophni and Phinehas had set the standard that ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel. For this book is going to remind us that it only takes one man to start a spiritual awakening within a country. Now, Eli had grown very old. He heard what his sons did to all Israel, how they slept with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear evil reports from all these people concerning you. In fact, this bad report is being spread around all Adonai's people. You know, if a man sins against another man, God may pardon him. But if a man sins against Adonai, Who's going to intercede for him? So we see that not only were his sons violating the offerings by taking portions not allotted to them, they were also taking place in some sort of illicit relationship with the women coming to the tabernacle. The scripture here from our translation says they slept with the woman. However, there are two predominant schools of thought as to what is actually going on here. The more traditional school of thought was follows that the plain reading of the text suggests that they were committing forms of fornication with the unattended women at the tabernacle. That's traditional. That's a baseline reading of the scripture. Women ultimately had to be at the temple a lot more than women. Men are required three times a year to go up. And yet women, having matters of impurity and uncleanness revolving around childbirth and nidah, traditionally came more often than the men did. This left them vulnerable to the wiles of Eli's sons. So now the second thought process that could be taking place here is that Eli's sons didn't do anything immoral with the women per se, but that they were treating their offerings in regards to this cleanliness with contempt and saving them for last. You see, the women, according to Leviticus chapter 12, 
for to be cleaned of their uncleanness and their impurity through, from childbirth, they were to bring two things, a lamb and a turtle dove. However, if they were poor, they were allowed to bring two turtle doves. Now, when it comes to the turtle dove offering, there's nothing left. You see, Hophni and Phinehas had nothing to gain from offering these offerings. So why not put it last? Let's get to the good ones first. The guy who brings the, ca the cow, let's get the steak rolling. This bird that I'm not going to get a piece of, or this, this, this lamb that I really don't like the flavor of, we'll, we'll hold off on that. We'll push that aside. These women can wait. In this thought of interpretation, the author of the book of 1 Samuel is equating this treatment of the women as one which would have actually interfered with the natural reconnecting of them with their husbands. You see, the longer they had to wait, the longer they had to wait to go home as well. So in other words, the sons of Eli are stepping into the place of an adulterer because they're causing the women to keep, take longer to get back with their husbands. Paul picks up on this idea in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in the Brit Hadashah. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 7 verses 2 through 5 says this. Because of all immorality in the world, let each man have his own wife. And let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband and the wife each fulfill their obligation to one another. Neither the husband nor the wife have the right to their own body. Do not deprive one another except by mutual consent for a time. And in that, so that they may devote themselves to prayer. Afterwards, they are to come together again so that Satan doesn't tempt them because of their lack of self-control. You see, the Bible's clear on the authority, excuse me, the Bible's clear in its authority regarding happy and healthy marriages. We're not to deprive our spouses of sexual intimacy. It's not a tool to be used to get what we want or for revenge. The reason being is that there's no other relationship that we can experience here on earth that is closer to our relationship with our Messiah than the physical, intimate oneness which we share with our marriage partner. As parents, this is why it's so vital that we teach our children that abstinence is crucial to their walk with the Messiah. It's a treasured, precious thing. It's the closest example that we can come to of our relationship with our Messiah, the intimacy there. Unfortunately, if we go by the traditional teaching of the scripture, we find that this lesson seemed to be lacking in Eli's raisings of his sons. But Eli's sons did not listen to the voice of their father because Adonai desired to put them to death. Meanwhile, the child Samuel kept growing and increasing both in favor with Adonai and also with men. Now a man of God came to Eli and said, Thus says Adonai, I revealed myself clearly to the house of your father when they were in Egypt. I chose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my Kohanim and to receive all the fire offerings presented by the children of Israel, officiating at my altar, burning incense, and wearing an ephod before me. So then why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings and honor your sons more than me? 
For you and they have become fat with the choicest of offerings my people bring. Therefore, Adonai, God of Israel, declares, I indeed said that your house and your father's house should walk before me forever. But now, declares Adonai, far be it from me, for I will honor those who honor me, but those who despise me will be disdained. It is at this point that we see that God's had enough. He's seen whatever the issue is that's taking place here, it's gone above and beyond what he's willing to forgive. Now, the idea here being that he had given them ample time to repent, but they chose to remain in their sin. Therefore, God has removed the ability to repent from them. This seems to be a little harsh in our Western ideal and understanding, but it's not the first time that we've seen this type of event play out in Scripture. In fact, next week we're going to see it start to play out again as we look into the Exodus with Pharaoh. Now, the Reuben edition quotes the Talmud in Teshuvah 6.3, saying this, With reference to Pharaoh, whose heart God hardened in Egypt during the course of the ten plagues, Ramban explains that sometimes people sin so frequently and egregiously that God removes from them the possibility of repentance so that they will be punished for their sins. Pharaoh squandered his opportunity to repent. His oppression of the Jews was so unjustifiably severe that his stubbornness in refusing to submit after the first five plagues, so indicative of the depth of his evil, that he forfeited his chance to repent. Therefore, God hardened his heart so that he would continue his denial and be destroyed. In other words, repentance isn't a game to be played with or postponed. And that goes for us as well. You know, as parents, we see this scenario played out too often in our own homes. A child's told to act appropriately and chooses to push off the repentance until it's too late. Then they beg, plead, and cry as they're being dragged into the other room to bear the consequences of their rebellion. I've seen it in my household. I've seen it with my friends and their children. It's just what children do. I told you you need to stop. They keep doing it. I told you you need to stop. They keep doing it. I told you you need to stop. But finally, the parents reach the limit, and they're like, okay, it's done. They grab them by the arm, and they start dragging them, and we see the child, no, mama, I'm sorry, mama, I'm sorry, mama. And I remember that growing up, because I was a stubborn child. I took the backside of a spoon quite often, a wooden spoon. One of my favorite remembrances of my mom, even though it was painful at the time, was when I was about seven years old, we had a cactus in our house. And I bumped into this cactus, and it had thorns. Parents, please don't put cactuses in your house. <laughs> I don't know why it was there. We live in Michigan. There's no reason to have a hot weather plant in the house, but we had it. I backed into this cactus, and I got a thorn about three inches long stuck out the side of my arm. You know, and I went, and I tried to pull it out, and it hurt, and I couldn't pull it out. And my mom said, you need to pull it out. If you don't pull it out, it's going to get infected. Nope, nope, nope. So I washed around it. I took a shower and I washed around it. Because that makes complete and total sense. I step out of the shower and there's my mom. Wooden spoon in hand. You need to take that out now. Nope, I'm not going to take it out. My mom proceeded to let me know 
uh, what the backside of the spoon looked like. <laughs> and eventually, in the midst of it, as she was letting me know what needed to take place, uh, she pulled out the thorn. And we stopped, and it was all done, and I'm sobbing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she goes, did it hurt? Did what hurt? And she holds up the thorn. I was like, how'd you get that? I pulled it out when I was beating you. I didn't even feel it. <laughs> you know, I tell that story to make the point that we don't discipline our children because we enjoy it. We, <laughs> we discipline them because we want what's best for them. That thorn had to come out. Unfortunately, I wouldn't let her take it out the easy way, and so it had to come out the hard way. But I'm here to this day. I never caught staph infection. I never got any type of infection. I still have my arm with me because she took it out. What she did, what needed to be do, done, even though it was actually painful for her. This is what Eli was supposed to do. It was going to be painful for him. He chose not to do it. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house. At a time when Israel's prospering, you will see, rival, see a rival in my dwelling place. And never will anyone in your family live to old age. So this is the, pro this is the, the prophecy being continued on. Still, I won't cut off every one of your men from your, my altar, because that would make your eyes grow dim, and you would waste away. Nevertheless, the sign that this will occur eventually will be what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas for they will both die on the same day. So the right to be Kohen Gadol will be taken away from Eli's household. It won't happen right away, and, but it will happen during the time of David. David will remove them from there, which is interesting because that will set up ultimately another Levitical priest, another Levitical dynasty who will uh, foreshadow the Messiah. Kind of cool how that all works. Yet I will raise up for myself a faithful Kohen who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. Then I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed one all the time. Anyone left in your household will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and will say, please, assign me one of the priestly offices that I may eat a morsel of bread. This phrase, walk before my anointed one. Anointed one refers to king, but we also know it also refers to our Messiah as well. So we have a double meaning within the scripture here. You see, within the protocol of Israel, the king is higher in rank than the Kohen Gadol. Because of this, the Kohen Gadol, or the high priest, must come before the king when he is summoned. summoned. In other words, he must walk before the king. The only time this is reversed is when the king wishes to consult the Urim and the Turim, which answered yes and no questions. At that point, when the king had a question, he had to go to the high priest and say, hey, I need you to consult. I have a yes and no answer. I need an answer. And what's interesting is this is the very reason why Yochanan the Immerser is confused when Yeshua comes before him for mikvah. Because remember what he said. What are you doing? I'm not supposed to baptize you. I'm not supposed to lead you in mikvah. You're supposed to baptize me with fire. I'm supposed to lead the way for you to come behind because I'm the priest. I'm from the priestly lineage. You're the king. 
I'm supposed to submit to you. But Yeshua is coming to Yochanan. And it's as if he's asking the question and saying, because through a series of events, historically, Yochanan the Immerser is supposed to be the Kohen Gadol. But a series of events have taken place and he's not. But that's okay because it's part of God's plan. And so it's as if Yeshua is coming to Yochanan and he's saying, hey, I got a question. Am I the Messiah? The answer is yes. And it's seen by the descending of a dove or the spirit of God in a dove form upon the Messiah. He's going. He's doing what biblically he's supposed to be doing. That's the whole point. That's why Yochanan's like, I, I'm not supposed, you're not supposed to come to me. I'm supposed to go to you. And Yeshua says, no, no, no. I've got a question. It's a yes and no question. And the answer was yes. He is the Messiah. So the child Samuel continued ministering to Adonai under Eli's direction. Now in those days, Adonai rarely spoke, and visions were few. One day Eli was lying down in his place, and now his eyes had grown dim so that he could not see. And the lamp of God, which had not gone out yet, Samuel was lying down in Adonai's temple, where the ark of God was. Then Adonai called to Samuel. So he answered, here I am. Then he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. It's an obedient child. I mean, I think this is great that he's so obedient, he just misunderstood who was calling him. But Eli replied, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. I could just see how this went. Because being a parent and being woken up in the middle of the night by your looming child standing over you scares you half to death. I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. So Samuel went back and lay down. Then Adonai called Samuel yet again. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. But he answered, I didn't call you, my son. Go back to sleep. Now Samuel had not experienced Adonai yet, since the word of Adonai had not yet been revealed to him. And Adonai called Samuel again for the third time. So he got up, went to Eli, and said, Here I am. You called me. Then Eli perceived that Adonai was calling the Lord. So Eli said to Samuel, Okay, bud, go back to sleep. If he calls you, say, Speak, Adonai, for your servant is listening. So Eli says, hey, if God calls you again, reply back and say, I hear you, Adonai, and that's the yod heh vav He said, call on the name of the Lord. But we're going to see that Samuel was going to do the opposite-ish than what Eli was saying. So he said, call on the name of the Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went back and laid down in his place. Then Adonai called and stood and called as at other times. Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Samuel has an awe for the name of Adonai. He knows it's not his place to call on the name of Adonai. That is the place of the Kohen Gadol. That's why we're so careful in our movement to be saying the name of God, whichever way we think it might be pronounced. It's the responsibility of the Kohen Gadol to do such a thing. So in those days, Adonai rarely spoke, and visions were few. And you know, there's times in the Bible that if we're not careful, 
and we don't take into consideration what the text is telling us, we miss an amazing truth of God. And this is one of those times. For it seems that Adonai, rarely speaking, and visions being few, is meant to be an oddity among the people of God. Causes us to question, doesn't it? Perhaps this is the point where we, as the body of Messiah, should take inventory of our own personal walks with the Creator. You know, we hear quite often, well, I don't hear from God. God doesn't answer prayers. I don't see miracles. Why don't we see all these things? According to the testimony of Scripture, it's an oddity when you don't see these things. It should not be the norm. For this is the living word of God, and it's admonishing us to seek him more closely so that we can hear from him more often. In our society, it's so easy to just kind of put it to the side. The Bible tells us to wake up early in the morning and to study. Sometimes that pillow feels so nice. It takes some effort and commitment for us to seek God's face. So Eli had found himself in autopilot. He had become so accustomed to not hearing from God that when it finally did happen, he was unwilling or unable to act upon. This is similar to the intimacy shared in a marriage by spouses. The intimacy needs to be shared so that we're closer and we know each other more often. The less intimacy there is, the less you know. The intimacy draws us closer. Then Adonai said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone that hears it will tingle. And that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity that he knew about, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, yet he did not rebuke them. So we find out that he did not rebuke him. What he said to them was a simple slap on the hands. You guys better stop, because who knows what's going to happen if you keep going. You might get yourself in trouble. Perhaps Eli thought it was too late. They were past the, the, the age of ch- childhood. They were full-grown men, full-grown adults with their own families. Perhaps it's too late for me to speak into their lives. Or perhaps he thought they were too old, for they were already career-minded. They're not going to change. They're already set in their ways. There's no way they can change. You know, whatever the reason Eli felt as though he was in a position where he had no right to speak into their lives, But the scripture here declares that not only did he have the right, but the responsibility to say something. For their actions were not simply affected by their own lives, but it also affected the lives of their fellow Levites, the nation, and ultimately the renown of God himself. Eli had the right and the responsibility to say something. However, through Samuel... God has given Eli an opportunity to amend for his poor choices that he made in raising his children. See, his time for raising his children is past. Now, he doesn't get to speak as a parent. He gets to speak as a coach, if you will, into his children's lives. But now he's been given a second opportunity with Eli to raise him the correct way. As parents, sometimes it feels like we've made bad choices raising our kids. And it seems as if it's too late to 
make it right. But the declaration of scripture is that it's never too late. Whether it be grandparents to their grandchildren, or even here in our children's ministry, it's never too late to affect change in the next generation, to be given a chance for a do-over. God's prophecy continues. Therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Then Samuel lay down into the morning when he opened the doors of the house of Adonai. But Samuel was afraid to tell Eli about the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, here am I, he replied. What is the word that he has spoken to you? And he said, please don't hide it from me. May God do so to you and even more if you hide anything at all from me that he has spoke to you. So Samuel told, Samuel told him everything and hid nothing. Then Eli said, he is Adonai. May he do what is good in his eyes. This is mind-blowing here. Samuel's just been told, hey, you messed up. You're, you're losing it all. Samuel and Eli's response, all things Hashem. So Samuel grew up, and Adonai was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Then all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was entrusted as a prophet of Adonai. Adonai started to appear once more in Shiloh, for Adonai revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of Adonai. So through the prophecy of Samuel, the unnamed prophet's message has been confirmed. Sadly, we see that the ungodliness of Eli and his sons led to unrighteousness and disqualification. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. We'll close here. It says, don't delude yourselves. No one makes a fool of God. A person reaps what he sows. Those who keep sowing in the field of their old nature in order to meet its demands will eventually reap it, will eventually reap ruin. But those who keep sowing in the field of the Spirit will reap from the Spirit everlasting life. So let us not grow weary of, what doing, of doing what is good. For if we don't give up, we will in due time reap the harvest. Therefore, as the opportunity arises, let us do what is good to everyone, and especially to the family of those who are trusting faithfully. The consequences of Eli's sins had come full circle. And yet, as a contrast, we see God's unwavering plan begin to take shape. Somehow, he's going to take Eli's mess and use it for his good purposes. For once again, we see that it only takes one person following the calling of Adonai to start a spiritual awakening within a country. May this truth be seen in our own lives today. You see, we've all messed up and fallen short of God's standard of perfection, and as a result, we deserve the punishment of that disobedience, which is eternal death. And yet, even in the midst of our own fallen state, God took it upon himself to provide a way of escape from this penalty through the atoning death of our Messiah, Yeshua. So let's continue planting those seeds that are worthy of a good harvest. Shabbat shalom.